The sermon text for this morning is from Psalm 98. We'll read it in its entirety, all nine verses. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the, or the, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You may be seated. So this morning I am unintentionally, but gratefully, piggybacking off of Pastor Ryan's sermon from last week, speaking about treasuring Christ. Our desire is for all people to treasure Jesus and to worship him. We'll look at Psalm 98 this morning, and we'll look for answers why we treasure Jesus and why we want all people everywhere to treasure him as well. Or, in other words, and more specifically, why do we proclaim the gospel? Why do we proclaim the gospel from this pulpit, in these Sunday school rooms, and in the ministries, the teaching ministries of this church? Why does Butch, every week, remind those who listen that today is a day of salvation? Why do we support gospel-centered missionaries and ministries? Is it habit or obligation or appearance? We'll try to answer that from Psalm 98 this morning. And I want to remind you of, this is, these are two big verses for me hermeneutically of how we interpret Scripture, specifically how I interpret the Old Testament. And this is going to come into play this morning. Luke 28, 25 through 27, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's been talking with his disciples, and they're clueless about what has actually just happened. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, this is the important part, the part that I want us to see it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture things concerning himself. And a second verse from Colossians 2, verse 17, speaking of Old Testament rites and rituals and new moons and Sabbath days, these are shadows, or these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus is superior to all the shadows in the Old Testament that speak about him. And we're going to look at what the psalmist was writing and see how Jesus was better than those things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we beg for help to see clearly what you've given us in your scripture. We pray that we would see Jesus high and exalted. We pray that we would see our salvation as a wondrous, amazing gift from you, the pinnacle of time and space and what you have done in your universe. I pray that our hearts would be lifted up and eager to hear and eager to, to do what you tell us to do. Father, give me help today as I try to proclaim your word. Let my words be faithful to what you have said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very beginning, the first half of Psalm 98, the first half of the first verse the psalmist gives us a summary 
of the entire rest of the psalm. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. This is proper, and it's a normal attitude for Christians to have. We desire this for ourselves and for all others. We desire for all people to sing to the Lord a new song because he has done marvelous things. John Piper wrote in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. And that's the end of the quote. I have five points this morning, and they are five reasons why we proclaim the gospel. Reason one. We proclaim the gospel because Yahweh has acted. In verse 1b, the psalmist said, He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. This psalm could be talking of a number of different salvation events in the Old Testament, but I believe that it's referring to the Red Sea crossing in Exodus. This was a spectacular salvation, possibly the most spectacular salvation event where God acted supernaturally in the entire Old Testament. But to understand how spectacular this salvation was and how meaningful it was to the people who were there, we need to understand what they were saved from. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the sons that were born. When that plan failed, Pharaoh required all of his own people to kill any male child that they saw. Israel groaned under the oppression that they faced. God promised to bring them out with a mighty hand in Exodus 6. It says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. But they suffered under their bondage while God poured ten plagues on Egypt. As God planned, Exodus 7, 3 through 7 says, or 3 through 5 says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the peoples of Israel from among them. God could have brought Israel out of Egypt by softening Pharaoh's heart. Instead, he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could bring them out with a strong hand and a mighty arm. Yahweh intended to show himself mighty before Egypt, before Israel, and before all the nations and throughout time. He intended to show himself a mighty Savior, able to deliver his people from the worst of circumstances. He put his people through this so that he would get glory for it, and they would experience a marvelous deliverance. And Yahweh did bring them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He led them to the Red Sea. But the Egyptian army came after them. The exodus out of Egypt wasn't the mighty deliverance. It was when they came to the Red Sea. They were boxed in in front with the Red Sea and in the rear with the Egyptian army. They were either going to be exterminated or they were going to go back into bondage. That was their option. This is the need that they had of salvation. Save us either from death or from something that's maybe worse than death. That's where they were. 
their situation was desperate. They had nowhere to run, literally nowhere to run. They could not go forward. They could not go backward. They had come from despair, and now they were facing something even worse. And I'm about to read a lengthy passage. I'm going to read Exodus 14, 13 through 31. And this is at the Red Sea. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the water may come, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. This is a breathtaking account. Amazement and rejoicing are proper responses to this amazing deliverance. But as great as this deliverance was, it's only a shadow. Isn't that amazing? This, this was a spectacular deliverance. And we look at that and we say, shadow. It's weak. There's a desperation greater than that faced by the people of Israel in Egypt at the Red Sea. There's a deliverance superior to their deliverance. There is a deliverer far superior to Moses. His name is Jesus. We were all in bondage to sin and death. We were bound for, any, for, for an eternal hell. We were unable to follow God's law from our heart. If you don't know Jesus savingly, then you are in bondage right now. You are bound for hell. There is good news for you, though. There is a Redeemer. 
There are numerous passages in the New Testament that show the deliverance that we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of my favorites. I'm going to read that now. There were two lengthy passages that I was going to read this morning, and this is the second one. This spells out our condition before salvation, and this spells out what God has done for us. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to re-emphasize where we were before God saved us. We were dead in our sins. We were not sick. We were not confused. We were dead spiritually. We were following the devil. We lived our lives the way we wanted to with no regard for anyone else. And if it appeared to anyone that we had regard for anyone else, that's us wanting to make it appear like that. We did what we wanted to. We were children of wrath. That means that the wrath of God was rightly resting on us. We earned his wrath. Hell was waiting for us, but God redeemed us in Christ. Jesus is a better deliverer than Moses because our plight was far worse than the plight of the Israelites on the bank of the Red Sea. They faced physical bondage or physical death. We faced spiritual bondage and spiritual death. I think sometimes we get that confused. We look at a a bad situation and we think, oh, that's bad, but we don't look at our spiritual condition is far more important than what is temporally happening around us. Hell was waiting for us, but God redeemed us in Christ. We have a far greater deliverance. This is the gospel that we proclaim. And the gospel itself is the reason that we proclaim it. The, the, the gospel is the message, and it's the motivation for the message. God acted in history. He has given us a greater deliverance than we could possibly imagine. He sent his son to die in the place of his people so that they may experience life with him. The glorious, this glorious news wells up inside of us, and we desire to tell it. We want other people to see the mighty works of our great God. We proclaim the gospel because we have seen and experienced his works, and we desire to share with all people what he has done. Reason number two, why we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because the revelation of Yahweh's works transforms lives. Verse 2 says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Verse 3 says, All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. After Israel crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was destroyed, the nations around heard. This is from the Song of Moses, immediately following the crossing of the Red Sea. It's Exodus 15, 14 through 16. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now 
are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. This would become a standard thing for Israel. As they wandered around in the wilderness and later went into the land of Canaan to conquer it, word of Israel spread. And fear of Israel gripped the nations. This was a work of the Lord. Deuteronomy 2.25 says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. You shall hear, or who who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Yahweh made known his salvation to the surrounding nations, and the result of the people hearing what God had done was fear and terror. This fear gave Israel an advantage in battle. But this fear also led Rahab to come into Israel. Joshua 2.11 says, this is is Rahab talking to the spies. And as soon as we heard the conquest, she's talking about the conquest across the Jordan, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When Yahweh makes his mighty works known, it's not just so that people will have an intellectual knowledge of what he has done. The purpose for God making his works known is for hearts to be changed. It's amazing to hear of armies, of nations, hearing of the salvation of Israel and being fearful. It's maybe even more amazing to hear of Rahab hearing the mighty works of God and her leaving everything that she had ever known, proclaiming that Yahweh is God and joining with Israel. It's amazing. For non-Israelites in the Old Testament, knowledge of God's works produced fear. But in the New Testament, knowledge of God's work can bring hope. If their words of Yahweh's mighty works in the Old Testament had power, ours in the New Testament have even more. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus said, or Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. When we proclaim the gospel, we are speaking with the authority of very God himself. And he himself is with us to take the gospel to the nations and to our neighbors. Because we're speaking in the the authority of the risen Christ and have the promise of his presence, the proclamation of the gospel has power to enlighten and transform. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the, gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have hope to proclaim this gospel, this good news, this message to everyone. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, For everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when we have our missionaries come and tell us of their works, how beautiful are their feet. God is able to transform any heart. Um, this past week, I was had YouTube just playing and I had music going and uh, a song came up. I, I don't recall if we have sung this here, um, but it's Jesus. There's no one like you. It's a sovereign grace song. There's a line as I... As I was right here in my preparation, this line and this song played, and it, it hit me. It's so right. It says, there is no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of your mercy. We have confidence that even the worst sinner can be transformed because this is a work of God himself. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The transforming power of God accompanies gospel proclamation. What do we proclaim? We proclaim that all people are guilty of violating the law of God and can only expect hell forever as their punishment. In mercy, Jesus came and lived a perfect life, obeyed the law perfectly, and died on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God for all who would believe. He was buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven. All who repent of their sins and put their faith in him as their substitute will be saved. This is the message that we proclaim. By it, lives are transformed. We proclaim the gospel because proclamation has power to transform. And if you don't know him today, that gospel proclamation is for you. Flee to Christ. Trust him. He will save you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Reason number three, why we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because Yahweh's remembrance prompts his action. Verse three in Psalm 98 says, He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. To say that Yahweh has remembered something, specifically his steadfast love, does not mean that he had once forgotten it. That's not what it means. It means that he is now setting his focus and his attention on something. And in this case, he's setting his focus and his attention on fulfilling a promise that he had once made. When Israel was at the Red Sea, they could have been wiped out or taken back to Egypt as slaves. God did not plan on either of those things for Israel. The time for them to be slaves was over. The time for them to go to the land that he had promised them had come. And he had promised them, he had promised Abraham, your descendants will be in slavery for 400 years. So in a sense, he was faithful to his promise when they were in slavery. But now that time was past. His remembrance signifies his focused action toward them. He was now working, and they would be delivered. So he acted. He opened the Red Sea, and Israel walked across on dry ground. Then he closed the Red Sea, on the Egyptian army. And it, it is graphic, the description. It said that they saw their dead bodies on the shore. 
they were no longer a threat. They were not going to come and kill them. They were not going to bring them back to Egypt. They were delivered in a more spectacular way than they could have possibly imagined. God put his omnipotence on display and showed his people that he would work for them. He saw them. And he saw their desperate plight. He was concerned for them. And he focused his attention on them and acted. His focus and attention toward Israel was great. That led to a great deliverance. But again, it is a shadow. It is a shadow. We have a far greater assurance of salvation for all who call upon him. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone. Any person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have an assurance that he will hear and he will deliver 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he says, In a favorable time I, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. While you have breath, you can call on the Lord for salvation. Do it now. Do it while you can. Do it while it is still today. But do it. Call on the Lord and be saved. You're not promised tomorrow, which is why it has to be today. He will act. He will save you. He will make you a new creation. That is the glorious promise of the gospel. His attention and focus is on those who come to him in faith. We proclaim the gospel because we can confidently tell people that if they repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Reason number four of why we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because his person and his works call us to respond with worship. Verses four through six say, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. The heart of the psalmist is exploding with worship because of the salvation that he had either seen and experienced or that he had pondered in history. This is the proper response to the salvation that God works. Underneath salvation is the God who works it. What kind of God would work this kind of salvation. The psalmist seems concerned that we consider this. In verses 4 through 6, he admonishes his hearers to praise Yahweh three times. We don't just get excited about the salvation itself. As good as it is, salvation is better than destruction to us. But the salvation came from someone who was that someone? Moses knew. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is glorious. He is not a finicky God. He is not a cranky God. He is not an unfair God. He is exuberant in his perfections. His goodness pours out on his people. He has the power so that his goodness is not just a good intention. He accomplishes his purposes. He shows mercy and steadfast love, and he punishes the guilty. And you may be thinking, punishes the guilty? I thought we were talking about goodness and salvation. Isn't it good, though? If you consider injustices done against you, do you not want a righteous judge to judge and to pour out punishment when it's due? That should give us confidence and rest and hope. His nature is worthy of our worship. He demonstrates that goodness by his actions. Worship is the proper response before such a God. In the New Testament, we have the same God with the same character, but we have a far superior salvation. And we have a more intimate connection with our Savior. We have a better understanding of who God is because we have Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We look to Jesus to see what God is like. We experience firsthand the salvation that is from Jesus. Have you considered that? The people in the Old Testament, there was only one generation that experienced the salvation at the Red Sea. One. Christians, for 2,000 years, every generation has experienced the salvation of Jesus. Every generation. Because we know Jesus and we know his salvation, our hearts well up in worship. We can say, like is written in Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worship is the proper response to the person and works of God. Wayne Grudem writes in his Systematic Theology, Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts. Experiencing and remembering God's works of redemption stir up our hearts and our voices. His nature and his character are beyond comparison of anything that we can possibly even imagine. He is holy and loving and merciful, and powerful, and just, and wrathful. The redeemed heart considers him and sees beauty. This is the heart side of worship that Grudem wrote about. Another way of describing this is we treasure him. From last week, we treasure Jesus. We see him as beautiful and valuable, and we consider him our greatest treasure, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus said that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouths want to catch up with our hearts, so we sing. And we speak, and we say how great our God is. We say and we sing, he is worthy. He has done great things. And we strive to make our manner of life stay in line with the treasure that Jesus is to us. How are you doing with that in your own life? 
Are you treasuring him? Is he your greatest treasure? We all fail with that. Sometimes we find things that we will treasure more than Jesus. And God help us. Hopefully the Holy Spirit gets hold of us quickly and we repent of that. And we put the things in our life back in the places that are proper for them, which is enjoyment. Yes. But we treasure Jesus above everything. We proclaim the gospel because this response does not exist everywhere in every person. It should be our heart that every person come to the saving knowledge of God and become a true worshiper. We should desire that every person recognize Jesus as their greatest treasure. We won't stop proclaiming the gospel when 90% of the planet worships him or 95%, or 99%. How tragic would that be? Everybody's worshiping Jesus, except for, insert that group over there. No. No. He is worthy of all praise. We want all people to join us and worship our great God. That is why we proclaim the gospel. Reason number five, and this is the last one. We proclaim the gospel because we anticipate his future judgment. Verses seven through nine of Psalm 98 say, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The, the psalmist has moved from responding to what God has done in verses 4 through 6. And now in verses 7 through 9, he is anticipating what God is yet to do. He will come to judge. He makes this point emphatically by stating the objects of his judgment three times. He says he will judge the earth, the world, and the peoples. He judged peoples and nations with severity in the Old Testament. And his judgment was for a reason. Sometimes we have, may have a misconception that God's judgment was somehow arbitrary. We may even think of the people in the land of Canaan. We did a study a couple of years ago in Joshua, and Joshua just went through the land of Canaan. Just, it, it was war. It was war. But we may think those people that Joshua battled, they, they weren't so bad. I mean, they were just pagan. I mean... They were just unbelievers. No. God tells us differently. Deuteronomy 9.5, this is specifically talking about the conquest of Canaan, the people in the land of Canaan. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the, their land, but because of their wickedness. Because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There are some difficult passages in Joshua and Judges. There are things hard to read, hard to understand. The complete annihilation of cities, just very challenging but the complete annihilation of all the peoples in the land of Canaan was warranted. They were wicked violators of God's law. And so was Egypt and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And Yahweh would pour out judgment on each of them in different ways throughout the Old Testament. Look at the, look at the response that this warrants. It is 
sea-roaring, river-clapping joy. That's hard. That upsets our American sensibilities. It's difficult to consider responding in joy because of the pain that someone else is experiencing. But when God reveals his perfect, righteous judgment against sinners, the proper response is wonder and praise and amazement and thanksgiving. He never did pour out his full, unmitigated wrath on any of the people in the Old Testament. There was harsh judgment, and this is interesting. You always hear, oh, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. The God of the New Testament is nice. No, no, you have it backwards. There was harsh judgment in the Old Testament. But there is much harsher punishment in the New Testament. On the cross, Jesus bore the full, undiluted wrath of a holy God. And he did that for his people. The complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Jericho, the driving out of the people of Canaan were shadows of judgment. We look at those very difficult, horrific acts of violence, and we say, that was a shadow. That was minor. That was minimal compared to what God did to Jesus on the cross. That is judgment. You want to see judgment? You want to see harshness? You want to see severity? You look at the cross. Look at the cross. That is judgment. There is a future judgment waiting for all who do not know Jesus. Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is coming. This is coming. We anticipate it. And when it comes, as hard as it is to imagine, we will worship. Revelation 19, 1 through 2 says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and fast. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. There is a hallelujah for the judgment against Babylon. Because there will be great wrath, great judgment on that last day. We proclaim the gospel to warn everyone to flee and to escape that wrath. If you don't know Jesus, I ask you, why will you die? Why will you die? Trust him. He will save you. Today is the day of salvation. We also proclaim the gospel because worship is waiting on that day of judgment. And just as we desire all people to worship God for the acts that he has done in salvation, we welcome all people. Worship at the end of time, when God is judging. Worship then. Do not be the recipient of that judgment. So, in conclusion, why are we committed to the gospel? Why do we proclaim it here? Why do we support missionaries who proclaim the gospel around the world?
we are zealous that the name of Jesus be honored and exalted by all people. The more he is exalted, the greater our joy. The more people are transformed by his grace, the greater our joy. We proclaim the gospel because it is our great joy to do so. We don't proclaim or support the gospel out of obligation or duty or habit or appearance. We proclaim the gospel out of great joy. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed. We're amazed at your salvation. We're amazed that you would use us to be ambassadors to proclaim the gospel. We're amazed that you would bless us to share in the sharing of the gospel around the world with our missionary partners. Father, we pray that you would bless them today, wherever they are. Those that we are partnering with who are proclaiming the gospel, who are seeking to transform lives by proclaiming the gospel. We pray that you would bless them today. We pray that you would give them much fruit. Father, I pray that our hearts would just well up in worship of you, that our desire to proclaim the gospel would, would flow out of that spring. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the certainty of, uh, of heaven. I pray that you would just etch your truth deeper into our hearts, that we would praise you and worship you in a worthy manner. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.